Hey there, my name is Mark McCartney and welcome to the What is a Good Life podcast. For those of you that followed the newsletter last year, for which I interviewed 120 people around this question, the objective remains very much the same. I'm trying to provide you with tools and content that help you define your own answer to this question. While I'm also trying to share what I perceive to be more genuine expressions of the human experience. On the fifth episode of the What is a Good Life podcast, I'm joined by James Cusson. James is a creator at The Living Philosophy. I discovered James's work through his well-received YouTube channel of the same name, The Living Philosophy, and I'd strongly recommend that to anyone with a curiosity for philosophy or someone who's simply looking to broaden their thinking. Since devouring a copy of Albert Camus' The Outsider as a teenager, philosophy has taken James on a journey from despair to immense purpose. His content, guidance, and ideas have a strong emphasis on the significance of embodying the wisdom of philosophy, as well as the art of living the good life. So obviously, I thought James would be a great guest on the podcast. In this podcast, we discuss discovering purpose, focusing on the collective's well-being, as well as our own, building our own personal philosophy, and not least, the considerable significance of family and close relationships in experiencing a good life. James is a wealth of knowledge when it comes to philosophy and applying that in a practical way to our own lives. So I learned a hell of a lot from this podcast, and I'm sure you will too. So without further ado, the fifth episode of the What is a Good Life podcast. Well, James, thank you very much for joining me today. I'm, I'm very grateful to have you here. Uh, I said when we chatted earlier, I wouldn't fawn over you, but I must say to <laughs> listening, I'll be mentioning his, his philosophy channel on YouTube at the start, and I, I think it's absolutely brilliant. So I was very excited to be talking to you today. The well, first question I have for you, cheers. The first question I have for you is, what is it about philosophy that first attracted you to it? Uh, so it was just a life raft. It was just I was I was unmoored in the in the the oceans of adolescence. So I, I was just I'd come out of like a very tough. I didn't I didn't handle and I suppose most people don't. I didn't handle the shift to adolescence that well. And then I kind of just got lost in it. It took a few years and then I kind of spiraled down to some to some real depth where I was like, oh, I just, I, I, I feel like there's no way for me to get to the level where I can have a virtuous cycle, like bringing me upwards. Uh, so I just felt like I was stuck. Um, and yeah, I was just at this level. I, I knew I needed to be at this level where the ball would roll uphill. And I was just like, there's no way for me to bridge that gap. So it would probably be easier if I was dead. It wasn't even like a, yeah, it, it was it wasn't, it was, it was suicidal ideation rather than like, a, a, I don't know. But yeah, so I was in that dark place and then I just had a turning point and I just said, I'll start reading books again because I've just been playing video games. I was 15, 16 at this point. So I just started reading books and there were just things like The Three Musketeers or uh, some Jack London books or Arthur Conan Doyle. And they were just kind of hero stories that kind of, I was like, oh, this is this is good. And then my brother and my dad were like, oh, you should read this book, The Outsider by Albert Camus. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. And I read that and I was like, what was that about? That was, it was like nothing I'd read before. And I was like, oh, I got to read more of this. And my dad had had the same reaction. So he'd bought a load of Camus books. And one of them was The Myth of Sisyphus. And on the first page of that book, there's a line that the only serious philosophical problem is suicide. And I was like, oh, I'm home. This is I'm home. This is right. uh, this is the domain I've been searching for. People that are are looking at those fundamental questions from a point of view of of living, and that's that's where like the living and the living philosophy is about. Because it's the philosophy for me that has always been really deeply resonant was the 
either either the existentialists in that sense of like bringing it to life and Nietzsche would be strongly in that category or else there's the ancients who were and Stoicism has obviously seen a big uh, renaissance now as well but it's the ancient schools that were very much focused on eudaimonia this this question of like how to live your life so that was just my first discovery of philosophy and I was like oh, okay this is this is where I need to spend my time this is this is me. Yeah. So it was, it was just a life raft that I grabbed onto then. Cause I was like, Oh, this is going to take me where I need to go. These people are dealing with the questions that I'm struggling with. And this might take me towards some kind of meaning in life. Um, yeah. Well, what a powerful moment. Mm. I, I know I'm sure I'm, I'm, I know it wasn't just one moment in, in time, but like what a, I don't know, to, to be in such despair, I, I'm assuming. And then to, I don't know, this gorgeous sound of just like opening a book and reading the first yeah. line and kind of going, yeah. oh. Yeah, it was, um, it was, it was a dramatic finding. It was definitely one of the key moments of my life where I was like, oh, this is, it's, it's where you just, everything just kind of slots into place and you're like, oh, I, I, I see a future. I see, I see what I'm, I see a path, like an infinite game that I can play that will continue to nourish me. And yeah, it was just such a, a fortunate, now I, I, I wasn't at my lowest point now. This was a few months. I'd been reading the book, so I'd, I'd been kind of getting that that sense of of life back from those hero stories. But it was the first. It, that was kind of an aimless thing of like I was getting some kind of taste for life back. But this was the moment where I was like, oh, purpose! Like this is this is amazing, and just this this excited. It's kind of how I imagine Jung felt when he found alchemy, where he was like, oh, this is just this entire world that I didn't know existed and has such richness to give me. Um, and that was, yeah, that was the feeling when I, f- I first found that it. it was, yeah, I've probably had one or two other moments in my life that were, uh, that were as, yeah, as ground shaking as that. So it was, it was, it was a big moment. And then from, as, as you've moved through, as you've moved through life with, uh, almost absorbing so much content around, uh, around philosophy, like, is there, is there a question that you're trying to answer in your philosophical explorations? Yeah, so I think for a long time it was the question of eudaimonia, which is the good life. Like, what 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 is the, what is the best life that I could be living? What what is the, what is the good life for humans in general? And recently, that's begun to shift. So in the last year and a half, so. My interest in philosophy, as I was saying, was kind of to do with existentialists or to do with the ancients. It was to do with like that living sort of philosophy that was kind of centered around self-actualization. And in my 20s were more of a deep dive through Jung's work and into psychology. And it's only in the last like three or four years that I've started to come into a more purely philosophical space again. And I've been reading more left-wing philosophy, uh, kind of the, the postmodernists and there's a much more, there's an element of a collective side of things. And it was actually really interesting. I read an article by a journalist called Laurie Penny recently, and she was talking about, and this was a distinction that I just didn't know was there, but that the the self-actualization is seen by many on the left as a sort of a desperate narcissism. As, As the ship is going down, you begin to focus on yourself rather than on the collective systemic problems. So you see the problem, neoliberalism has directed the, the focus of our, of our work to ourselves, being like, I am the problem, if I can fix myself, then maybe I can do something about the world. When actually 
the image that comes to mind is I remember Brene Brown, who's like a shame researcher. She talks about, I remember her saying she went to her therapist and she said, I feel like a turtle without its shell in a briar patch. And her therapist was like, well, why don't you take the turtle out of the briar patch? You know what I mean? It's, it's this thing of like, rather than trying to figure out how to navigate the briar patch, maybe it's the environment that's the problem. So, but then, so, so Penny was kind of like having this, this juxtaposition between the, the, the focus on self-actualization versus the collective focus. But she was like, but looking at these people with the collective focus, and she was talking about some Occupy Wall Street protesters, and she was like, some of the best people I know, some of these activists, they don't look after themselves. They can be, they're, they're not that effective because they're not looking after themselves and they're not looking after the people around them. So she was pointing kind of towards the queer community as being where there's a, a big emphasis on mutual care, where it's like the, the health of your brothers and sisters is key to the health of the movement. And that was really fascinating for me because it's, that that's kind of coming back to a middle ground. It's like saying the self-actualization and group actualization is a key part of it. But so I've been thinking recently it's moved away a little bit from the self-actualization to being like, where does self-actualization fit into the briar patch? To what extent do we need to work on ourselves to overcome our own problems and to be the most effective versus to what extent we should we invest our energies in changing the world around us so that those problems disappear and so that for future generations, those problems disappear rather than solving the problem for myself and becoming some kind of psychological elite or emotional elite. How can we help the, how can we help eliminate the problem for others? So I, I'm at, at the moment, I would say that my, yeah, that's the problem space I'm looking at of like, how do you reconcile these things? How do you keep that from being a binary that's, that's opposed? How can you take collective and personal action or what, what does that group actualization look like rather than just personal? Uh, a sort of self-focused thing so that's yeah it's it, that's the space that I'm kind of moving through at the moment and it really fascinates because I don't it's trying to understand the group dynamics the collective psychology that we're engaged in rather than maybe individual psychology which is uh I don't it's it's a fascinating thing to try to figure out right because I, mm. I remember listening to I don't know if you've ever listened to Ramdas uh before but he's a uh, he was a teacher. Well, he used to be a professor at Harvard. He then uh, came to meditation and explored psychedelics even before with Tim Leary um, mm. as well. And then and then went to India and started doing meditation and all these things. And has focused or focused his life on on kind of uh, on chari- not charitable efforts, but problems that he saw in society and was talking about different revolutions um, uh, in terms of social consciousness and things like this and he was saying Mm. that when you're revolting against something or a lot of people that were activists he was saying that they they hadn't resolved some of their own issues so they were showing up quite angrily in this space and Mm. and kind of creating an us and them dynamic if if you get me so it in most of the movements he felt he was a part of there was still a a a very divisive sense of us and them so I'm, i'm just curious as to what you might think in terms of how does one try to fix the problems of the world? And I'm not trying to ask you for a <laughs> you're going to fix all the problems yeah. of the world right now. Yeah. But how would one fix the problems of the world if they're not um, at peace with themselves? Like, what, what could yeah. the expectations be for the, uh, the on the macro a, if, if all the micro is, is not at peace with oneself, if you get me? 
Yeah, it's, it's a good question. And it, so something that's come to mind is like, how, how fixed do you have to be as an individual? Like how, because when I look at people talking about self-actualization or talking about individuation, it seems like they're very, it's, it's like they're talking about, or, or you get Jordan Peterson talking about focusing on your circle of control, which is a stoic idea as well of let's, let's just focus on making your bed, focus on the little things in your life that you're actually in control of. And at some point, when you have more and more control over your life, you'll begin to have an impact on the world. So it's, it's, it's my problem, I guess, is that that, that impact on the world is like a tagline at the end of like, here's where you can derive your higher meaning. It's from having an impact on the world rather than now it's obviously not taking it as a starting point. I think it's, it's, it's not a great idea to take it as a starting point, but that's probably just me. That, that might just be a, a personality temperamental thing. Other people might say that it is. But I just think, I think it might, it might be do, doing away with an idea of perfection of like, how far to inner peace do you need to get before you can start to work with other people? Like, do you oh, need to, do you need to become enlightened? Yeah, yeah. Do you need to go away to a monastery for 20 years? Or do you just need to like sort out your life on a day-to-day level? Like, do you just need to deal with the first, like, eight, like, like they say that, that 80-20 rule, do you just need to deal with like a good bit of your shit so that you can start to be effective in the world? Or do you want to spend the rest of your life perfecting yourself so that you might have some amazing impact. And it's like, if you do away with the idea of perfection and this having this glorious insight into the world, and it's just like, well, okay, how can I make the world a better place? Because what you were saying there with Ramdas, I was reading something in Ken Wilber this morning, who's an American, like an integral philosopher. So he's kind of very focused on developmental levels. And he was talking about the, the pre versus trans fallacies or the pre-post fallacy that people like in, in a so he talks about it in terms of spirituality but he also just talks about it in terms of morality so he's kind of talking about something similar of uh i think it might have been kohlberg or one of these developmental psychologists in the in the 70s or 80s kind of after piaget who charted out the the childhood development levels looked at it in morality and they said that there's pre-conventional conventional and post-conventional morality and what Wilbur was saying is that if you go to some of these protests, and he was kind of looking back at the 60s and 70s, kind of coming out, the, the boomer generation's anti-authoritarian rebellion against the Vietnam War and all that. If you look at those, if you go to those protests, what you'll notice is that there's a lot of people that are pre-conventional morality. That is to say, they haven't taken on the actual moral code, which is kind of, I guess, what Jordan Peterson is telling people to do is like become responsible, uh, carry a heavy cross, bear a heavy burden. Is taking is becoming conventional. He's trying to get people from pre-conventional into conventional. Care about the society, be invested in society as a whole. But then what Wilbur's saying is that yeah, you get at these things to a surprising amount of pre-conventional people who are kind of just anarchist in the Sex pistol sense, rebelling against the system, and you get a few post-conventional people who are like, yeah, we've been through the conventional, and now we need to break this apart because we need to make something better because the system, who are much more, basically people who are much more thoughtful, much more exploratory in terms of like, exploratory and tolerant of like, okay, here's the, here's what we can work with, and the, the system isn't inherently bad. Not everyone in the system is bad but it's just that we need to kind of change the system. So you end up getting this blend of it. You get pre-conventional people who are taking on the cause because it's just, it's an exciting adventure and it also allows them to destroy something. Or, you know, there's, there's that kind of energy of rebellion versus people who are like, no, no, we need to 
transcend the system as it is. You, 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 could, you could frame it as the two types of anarchists, the sex pistol anarchists versus the philosophical anarchist. And, and those would just be caricatures because obviously this works in a, in a lot of different protests in a lot of different ways. But you can see that distinction of like the post-conventionalists having done enough work in themselves that they, it's not just a blind us and them kind of dynamic. Whereas the yeah, pre-conventional yeah. just being like an adolescent rebellion of like, system ain't serving me, I'm not investing in it, so like, let's break it. And it's like, it's because you got no skin in the game. Whereas a post-conventional person might have skin in the game, but they're like, I want to make a better world for those who come after me. So that, yeah, I, I, obviously there's no easy do, answer do to you your think, question um, because it's, it's how do you navigate no, it. No, that's, no, yeah, yeah, but, but I, think, um, I think you said a couple of, well, you said a number of interesting things, but a couple of things mm-hmm. that I'd like to focus on. It's almost like... Um, First of all, definitely that acceptance that, look, this isn't about someone needing to be perfect before they can fix anything. Like, you, you know, almost like let he, he who casts the first stone be without sin kind yeah. of thing. Like with, no one would throw any stones, right? Uh, yeah. So so for waiting for that 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 bit of perfection. Um, but I, I was just also curious and just even your relationship with what you're pursuing. And I, I know we, we mentioned when we were talking before, just like how influential someone like Nietzsche is on your life. Um, mm. But even just with a lot of the things that you're, you're absorbing, even when you mentioned the Stoics there or something like this, like where it's almost like this idea that you wouldn't react to other people's opinions. Um, I, I'm, I'm not trying to simplify it too much, but you know, just some elements mm. of this where it's almost like it is a pursuit of being really the very best version of yourself in, in, in some ways. How, mm-hmm. how do you, how are you in your own journey with some of this content that you're exploring? And then this, like, I don't know, some compassion for yourself as well, in terms of even what you're saying, then like, do I have to wait until I'm perfect to go out and help mm-hmm. the world? Or do you, do you kind of get what I'm saying in, in terms of, of, of yeah, that yeah, no, you're, yeah, I, I guess I having a YouTube channel, I can just, it, it feels like I'm doing some kind of collective action in that. Like, yeah, basically, yeah. I'm in a state of aporia where I just don't know. I, I really feel like I don't know because I feel like the system, everything is so complex. Like, the system is so complex. I, I don't really blame people in power. I don't really I don't really see an easy target for blame or for transformation because it seems more like a murmuration of starlings that are moving in a certain direction. It's like, well, how do you, how do you even begin to nudge something that is that is a river that is flowing you know what i mean it's 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 flowing towards destruction probably uh because you know we've got how many existential crises that, that we seem to be facing so how do you how do you affect at what what seems to be a natural collective force so what i'm trying to do is i'm trying to understand what the collective force is i'm trying to understand the dynamics of collective psychology and trying to communicate those insights as well as trying to communicate an attitude of like let's not go around demonizing every which side and like creating a polarized dynamic so trying to model some kind of let's actually look at let's let's have good faith that in 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 the different teams that are that are out there the green team the blue team the red team and how, what what problems they're emphasizing and saying that everyone probably has something to bring to the table and you can even see it as that We'll say Jordan Peterson versus a more left-wing perspective as having a, a self-actualization versus a collective emphasis. Like there's something to learn from both of those. So trying to just model an attitude where it's like, oh, okay, we need to 
yeah, like everyone has something to offer. So that's, I see as, as a degree of like doing some kind of collective work or being somehow involved in trying to influence uh, the conversation on a bigger level and trying to do these studies that might someday crystallize into something clearer uh, in terms of like, is, is, a, is there a certain type of collective action that is actually possible that is helpful that I, that I feel like I can get involved in? So it's something like that of moving in a certain direction and waiting for something to appear. And then on the other hand, I'm continuing to do my self-work and continuing on my own personal journey. So yeah, trying to, trying to also continue to organize my own life and to, to make myself the most effective and the, the healthiest person that I can be. So trying to work both of those, and I'm lucky enough that my career seems to be tending in a direction that works on that collective level and allows me to explore and understand more of that collective level. And then also allows me to, on a personal level, yeah, get into my own psychology, get into my own underworld and start to figure out what's going on down there and what the different biases and what the different, uh, yeah, what what rests in my underworld that I can maybe undo and, in order to make myself more effective in the other pursuit. And so seeing it as each each of those paths, the, the personal and the public, as feeding each other and driving a dynamic positively onwards. It's a, it's a lovely, humbling uh, experience to be messing around in the underworld, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Humbling is a good word. Yeah. <laughs> Extremely Just, humbling. Um, yeah. What are... What are some of the processes that you embark upon in 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 this kind of self work? Uh, so, I guess well, three things come to mind. Uh, so for the last, I mean, I've always been fascinated by organizational systems, uh, but for the last, let's say nine to ten months, I've been I've been pretty crazy about this getting things done uh, methodology. So I'm just trying to really get in control of all the elements, all the different projects, all the different tasks in my life and to to be more in control of of that, of what I can control and being able to just clear that perspective a little bit so we have more of a long-term perspective. So trying to just create an organizational system that will help me gain more and more control over time, over my life. So that's something I've been working on as well as uh, another program called Obsidian, which allows me to map out different notes and ideas and create kind of a Wikipedia of everything that I'm learning so that my knowledge kind of continues to enrich itself and is more like a garden rather than a series of separate projects. So that's kind of on an organizational side. Uh, I've been doing work with a, a kind of a post-Jungian analyst, therapist for a while. So he's, he's fascinating. He studied... Um, he was going to become a shaman, I think, at some point, or he spent six months in in, in the Amazon kind of with, doing ayahuasca work. And then he's done a few Vipassana sits, and then he's gone through the Jungian training, but has also kind of moved away from Jung for a while into kind of a James Hillman, into a kind of a post-Jungian space, but is now coming back to Jung. So he's kind of in the exact space that I need someone to be in, which is, so that's been really cool. And then that that was kind of I'd been planning to do that for about seven or eight years since in my mid-20s kind of discovering young and been like, I want to become a Jungian analyst, but needing to start doing that. But then it just ended up not happening uh, because of money and where I was at in my life. So that's that's been exciting. So that's been going on for a few months. And the other thing is ayahuasca, I guess, that earlier, again, about a year ago, I did uh, first ayahuasca. or Well, I'd done ayahuasca a few years back, but I... It, yeah, it was it was a brief experience which didn't really 
anyway, that's, that's a separate thing. But I did a weekend uh, last year and I'm doing another one um, in about a month. So that seems like a good thing to check in with annually uh, because I see that as, you know, the East, the that image of like Eastern mind and Western mind are like two ponds that are clear. And the reason why the Eastern mind is clear is because the, the sage goes out and, and fishes all the dirt out of it every morning. But the reason why the Western one is clear is because he just doesn't touch it. The dust and the dirt all settles to the bottom. But if you stir it up at all, all this dirt will come up. I see ayahuasca is throwing a grenade that's into a, the Western that's a lovely, mind. Uh, yeah, that's a lovely uh, image uh, to, the, to describe yeah. it. So you, you, you disturb that. So I see ayahuasca is like throwing a grenade in and just throwing up a lot of dirt. So you're just like, here's, I, I, don't, I don't see it. And I'm probably off here, I, I, but I, I don't see it as healing anything so much as bringing up the possibility to heal because it, it brings that stuff that is hidden in your underworld to a place where it can be dealt with because you're actually now conscious of it. So I see it as, as being right. uh, so, bringing up so, stuff that so you can it's digest. Your, so it, it, it provides an opportunity for something to be integrated. Um, exactly. I've tried. I've uh, I've explored with ayahuasca on a, on a couple of occasions as well, and it's uh, some like. And I spent some. I spent a, I spent some time in Peru too, where it was very. Uh, I, I wasn't partaking in it then. I I, I tried San Pedro when I was there, but it, mm. in the local community I was in, it was getting a little bit commercialized. I wasn't in the forest or something like this. Yeah, yeah. So I had a bit of a resistance to some of the the narrative around it. But I think the way you described it there is the best way, like because it's not the healing isn't inherent in the process. It's what you do with it. No. it yeah. you, you know, it's, it's I'd almost uh, equate like a, a psychedelic experience almost to. Like just because you have a great wedding or something doesn't mean you're going to have a great marriage. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. No, and, and I yes. do. I am open to a perspective of. So I, I had a friend here in Ireland who she was she's an animist of she she's kind of a, a non plant medicine kind of shaman, and that fascinates right. me because I'm like that's more Carlos Castaneda. I don't really understand how that could possibly work. Um, but talking about the spirits being in like there's, but it's interesting because she's also really into leftist philosophy. She, so she talked about the spirit of capitalism, the spirit of dopamine, but also the spirit of the clover plant and how these things have their own sort of consciousness. And so I, I am open or curious about the idea of ayahuasca having its own consciousness or this, this idea that there's a, there's a teacher element to that. And I don't know whether it's, it was priming, but the first time I had uh, an ayahuasca experience, I very quickly got sick and the, and the experience pretty much ended. It wasn't a particularly well-organized thing, so they were out of ayahuasca. So I didn't, you know, it was, it was, I was lying there thinking for the night after that. But there was a, I felt like I was coming to a precipice where I was like, oh, I have no idea. But I had the sense that out of my peripheral, there was like a feminine presence. And right, right kind of a, a Virgin Mary kind of vibe to it. But I don't know whether that was primed by people talking about, you know, there, there being this this spirit of ayahuasca that is a feminine spirit. So it could have been primed. But yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm at least open to that idea of maybe there's something else going on that our materialist, uh, more Western perspective mightn't yet be permeable to. So maybe there's more going on. But yeah, I think a frame for... a a good frame for a 21st century Irish person anyway, is to be like, hey, this is going to bring up stuff that I need to deal with. It's not like a magic silver bullet that's going to do all the work for you. And you do hear about people 
friends were saying they were watching a documentary about it last week. And there was people who, someone who'd done it like 200 times. It's like, what, what are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> like, you, like, yeah. like, yeah, yeah. And maybe, maybe that's okay. But just to me, I'm just like, where's the integration happening? Like, I, is ayahuasca becoming your life or are you now that that's where it seems like a desperate sort of narcissism where you're just like no no i want to spend more and more and more and more time with myself and money on myself and going into myself it's like like you need to digest it you need to you need to bring and that's something i, I loved in joseph campbell's thing of the hero's journey is you need to bring it home you need to bring it back to the to the mundane world like of of your, of your everyday you need to you need to go come away from the magic like underworld and you need to bring your 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 treasure back. Otherwise, it's just for you. So what's the point? Yeah, which is, um, I, d- I don't know, just as from what you just said there, that even the idea of dabbling with what could be beyond the material, uh, just the material side of, of existence, um, and even other experiences I've had with psychedelics, like I... I once a year I might have an experience if you know what I mean. So whether that's a Mm. large dose of psilocybin or ayahuasca or San Pedro once and, but then even just my general musings in life kind of, uh, I view us as really blunt instruments in perceiving an objective reality. Right. (laughs) So even if there's, if there's work that I've read by, I'm fascinated in quantum physics as well. And and quantum physics throws up really weird stuff as well. I almost find, Quantum physics and psychedelics for me have a similar, <laughs> almost have a similar <laughs> feeling on my body, yeah. if you know what I mean. Like I, I know some quantum physicists that just talk about uh, whether it's quantum tunneling or entanglement or these different things. Where I'm like, oh, I, was, I was studying Carlo Rovelli recently, which is he has a new interpretation of. Just, yeah, yeah. That's what who I was just about to mention. Um, even just his perception or the way he talks about time, the order of time. Um, how do you kind of? How do you hold on to some of these things and still, you know, even if you're saying again, the hero has to bring this stuff back, Mm. how do you manage to kind of play with these things and yet still kind of keep it together, shall we say? Uh, What do you, can you, can you elaborate that a little bit more? Yeah, yeah, sure. Like just, um, I don't know. So for, so for example, I guess I'll say it in a different way, even like, I, I find it funny sometimes the way some people will say they believe in God. And then the way that people from different, uh, not bashing religion now or something like that, but it's easy to say you believe in something so wonderful or, you know, some something kind of so beyond mind. Um, but if you actually play with that, like play with these concepts that there's more to this world than the material, that there is, um, that there could be some divine creator, that there could be a teacher even within, uh, in ayahuasca, as you're saying, mm. like these are almost quite like, fantastical kind of notions in terms of just not the mundanity of um of normal existence but the basics of of how we go about living life so i mean kind of that like the marrying almost of order and chaos uh, and in terms of Mm. still feeling like you've got a grip on on reality we'll say if you get me yeah i think i just hold them lightly because it it doesn't i haven't had a like even even with psychedelics, I've never had a an ego death experience, or I've never had these. I've never like, I I know people who have, and who who have had and who have these psychotic experiences, 
connected to this other kind of realm or connected to other worlds and it's it's part of their daily life and it's it's partly a struggle and partly a, a blessing i don't have that so these kind of remain in the head knowledge domain of like oh i'm open to the idea of like you know i imagine young when he was going through his midlife crisis he said he'd see his patients he'd have dinner with his family and then in, in the evening he'd go up to his study and his knuckles would be turning white on the table as the dead appeared in the room. And then, you know, he finds himself in the underworld. So he was, he was able to straddle this psychotic breakdown, which led into his red book, which that tiny space of time, he said the rest of his life was just mining this, this four years um, of, of a psychotic break. Uh, so there's like that, that potential magic of it, but I don't have that. So I feel like there's certain people that are called into that, everyday experience of the the transcendental um and there's other people that are just fascinated by it and i guess i've managed to become intellectually sober where i can have these ideas like when i was 21 i wanted to be the youngest ever buddha like that was my aspiration where i was like not only do i want to become buddha but i want to be the youngest ever one you know what i mean because i was reading all these mystical traditions i was like oh it's possible to become enlightened well why not well let's see the buddha yeah, was yeah. what like 30 or, or 30 35 jesus was probably about yeah, at least probably 30 when he got baptized i was like this guy angie demello saying it'll take seven years if i start now i'll be the youngest ever nice one so you know what i mean it's it's, it's a ridiculous it's a hilarious thing to look back on now but, it's, but I think, it's, but I think it's so. I think it's so common, though. <laughs> oh, that, that, it, it absolutely is. But it's it's now I've got the distance. I thought I was going to be yeah, yeah. Like I thought I was going to be five years and I'd be enlightened or something. <laughs> yeah. Like this. yeah. So these these are like the. It's funny to get sober from that fascination and be like, yeah, oh, yeah, how yeah, naive yeah, yeah. I was. But then, yeah, as you say, it's surprisingly common, whether it's admitted or not. Those assumptions yeah. are out there. And it's, it's, it's a lot of like dangerous bullshit in many ways. But I think that that's, that's probably where I'm a little bit more exceptional, if anything, is that like, it's not because I've got an experience of the transcendental, but it's because I've managed to be one of the people who doesn't have an experience of the transcendental, who can accept that the transcendental is there, but that I'm not experiencing it or necessarily want to experience it. You know what I mean? I'm not, I'm not intellectually fascinated by it, which is the kind of danger I think when people first discover this kind of Eastern uh, exoticism or even when they discover young is that like, they're like, I want to reach that end goal. I want to experience that the fireworks. It's kind of like the tiger going around eating the magic mushrooms. It's like, wow, you want to have a trip. Like that's you, you want to have some kind of like crazy experience because maybe there's something in the mundanity of your life that you're not fully at peace with, or you're not happy enough with your own life. So yeah, I, th I think that it's, it's, it's it's not common enough that you meet people that can accept the metaphysical without becoming fascinated by it. You either get people that are, or it's very common to get people that are very rational and completely dismissive, or people that are just taken in by it, like hook, line, and sinker, and they're like, I'm going to become enlightened. And it's just the ability to say that, yeah, that stuff is out there. Not everyone is called to experience it. I think almost no one would want to experience it if they knew what the journey is like, but it's there. Um, but is that really what we should be focusing on? Is that really what we want to work on? If you're called to it, then great, go off and become a Buddha. But very few are called that way and even fewer will survive that path. So yeah, it's trying to like have a place for that. But uh, yeah, I forget where I was going with that point. But <laughs> No, no, uh, just in terms of, uh, you mentioned uh, Anthony DeMello there uh, mm. within all that too. 
what are you like when you think of someone like that right who's just almost like you're an ass uh <laughs> let go of everything um <laughs> you know and, and and almost heaven on earth is is within your was is yeah. within your fingertips almost hey so I'm asking this almost in in a in like a, a projection of my own experience or something. But how do you? So I understand like okay, it doesn't have to be this transcendental, a kind of um, magical thing almost. But there is mm. almost like uh, I don't know how you felt when you read Anthony DeMello, but when I've read some of his books, it almost feels like I've been the, like a fist of truth has punched me in the solar plexus. Yeah. And, yeah. And he's kind of like, he's kind of like saying to me, just let go of all this shit. Stop caring what people think. Like you're doing it to yourself. Like, you know, I think in one of his lectures, he even says something like without the human mind, where, where on the planet does suffering exist? Mm. And and he seems to be far more practical, right? Like I, yeah, I, I, yeah. Well, I'll, I'll ask for your point. So he seems to be far more practical. It's not predicated on some crazy um psychedelic experience ego death psychotic break any of these things he just seems to be speaking some really simple truths and when i read his stuff i'm like it's not that rush to get enlightened again it's almost like like going oh my god i'm i'm holding on to my own mother instead of viewing instead of the possibility of viewing everyone as my mother my brother or sister Mm. Do do you kind of get what i'm saying how do you kind of straddle yes. some of that some of that work? Then? Well, see, Andrew DeMello was the main one that got me drunk because the song of the the song of the bird was like, <laughs> you read these stories once, oh, wow. you know, you get entertainment. You read these stories twice, you'll be doing theology. But you read these, you you t- you carry these stories with you. You let them breathe through you, and you will become enlightened. And I was like, carrying this book with me. So yeah, uh, there, <laughs> but there, I do take the point that there is something in DeMello that is that makes it very simple. That it, like in its simplicity kind of shows you kind of like what I was saying there laughing with the enlightenment thing. It's it, it makes you go, yeah, okay. I didn't realize that was such a naive thought for me to have, or I was so caught up in something. And DeMello does that, you know, page after page after page. He's just like, he, he, he can kind of, cause he's such a jovial kind of fellow as well that you're like, ah, oh, yeah, you can, you can laugh at yourself and you can laugh at these notions and you're like, oh, it's all so simple. But I think when it comes to practicing that it's, it's like, Ryan Holiday uh, emphasizes this thing again and again that like it's simple or it's easy, but it's not simple or it's simple, but it's not easy. I forget which way around. Yeah, it, but yeah, basically yeah, it's, it's easy. It's expressions. E- yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's easy, easy to understand, but it's, it's actually not that it, it's the depth of work involved in getting to that simple understanding is immense. And I think that that's the case with the mellows that like he points out a lot of things and you're like, okay, yeah, maybe I shouldn't care as much what other people think. Okay. Turns out there isn't a magic switch in my brain that turns off what I care about, what other people think. And in order to like adjust that, well, you need to think about mm, maybe there's certain cases in which I don't want to care what other people think, but I probably do. In general, we probably do want people to care what other people think to a certain degree. Otherwise, again, you end up with that pre-conventional versus post-conventional thing. You do want to care what other people think. Maybe you don't want to be a slave to it all of the time, but you know, there's, there's, there's sort of subtle dynamics like that. But then when it comes to the psychologically practical thing of like, okay, how do you actually go about changing how you feel about what other people think? And that might be a very personal journey of like, well, why do you care so much what other people think? Is there is there a sense of safety that's missing? Is Maybe you need to become more content with yourself. Maybe you need to become more assertive. Like what is, there's probably a very long personal journey to arrive at that simple thing of like, I no longer care what other people think. 
and the, the qualifications of what that actually means because you're not a psychopath. You haven't just cut out the empathy circuits in your brain. You probably do still care what other people think to a degree. But yeah, so like leaving out the qualifications, I've arrived at the point where I no longer care what other people think is actually a very long journey. So DeMello has done a lot of self-work. He's done years and years and years of self-work and can boil down basically the, the, the what a very healthy human looks like or what a very uh, spiritually developed human looks like into simple pointers. He makes it so simple and that's the, the, the brilliance of a great communicator. But I think the journey to get to those things isn't, contained oh, in a sentence uh, look, uh, uh, absolutely and like it's like um you know i think uh, eckhart tolle is a a very interesting dude but a terrible teacher because according to even his own experience it was like almost having like a like suicidal thoughts thinking that he couldn't carry on anymore and then almost at the brink of something and then experiencing a moment of enlightenment if, in whatever way Mm. I was I almost think that's almost a dirty word sometimes the way it's thrown around. So in in whatever way he he changed or experienced something profound, I guess. Um but that it is uh sometimes I do wonder. So I, I agree with a lot of what you said there, but I also wonder uh, is it kind of like the neurosis of the Western man that we come up with these crazy complex models? And and even for context, I was one week I was reading um I forget what the book on Jung's called, but the essential collection of Jung or something like this it's called. Um, and then I was also reading um, a book by uh, Robert Sapolsky, the the Stan, uh, Stanford neuroendocrinologist, who's a fascinating dude who has very strong mm. thoughts on free will. And when I was reading this, like various intakes of neuroscience, then I was reading about Jung and all these dynamics that are happening in you and then the happening in the other person. And I was just like, Surely it can't be this complicated, though. Or surely I, I can't, I don't have to think about this much stuff. Like, mm. so once again, like almost like a halfway house between, okay, it's not this simple because I do agree. It's not like you click your finger. Oh, I just want, you know, these pithy statements. Oh, just stop caring what people think. Yeah. Oh, fuck off, mate. Like, <laughs> <laughs> but then at the same time, too, and I even wanted to bring this back to you in the sense of um, the whole idea of just dropping what uh, other people think. But then we're all doing that to some degree. Like even when you started your your YouTube channel or something, like I'm, I'm sure you were battling some sense of what the hell am I doing at the start of that and and mm. moving through it, right? Um. Yes. Yeah. Like. Yeah. I think. I think we are always dropping certain beliefs. Yeah. For certain. Yeah. yeah. So, so I, I, I don't know. I just wonder, as I just mentioned before, I, I think some of the models or the maps that we have, yeah. the more we go into the material kind of explanations for things, they leave me a little bit wanting. Mm, yeah. Again, that might be to do with psychology being a young science rather than being to do with the... So what comes to mind with, with what you were saying there of like, yeah, I moved away from certain ways of thinking... But, but was that an unlearning or was that a relearning? Did I, did I remove a layer or did I add another layer? Did I go, okay, instead of taking Jung as, as my ultimate model here, I've brought in Wilbur as a new model. And now I'm looking at, and like this whole thing that I'm talking about here is like René Girard's work on mimetic theory of desire, where 
when we want something, it's not because we think it's because we want it. We think there's this romantic lie that we have our own desires that are, we, we autonomously come up with our own desires, which he says is probably only true in the case of actual appetites, like being hungry or wanting water, maybe even sex. But usually what's going on with desire is that when we want something, it's because someone else wants it. Now, when that model is like a hero or something, so I might I might want to think in a certain way because Wilbur thinks in a certain way or because Young thinks in a certain way. So I look at the world through the lens of that model and I'll idealize them because I'm like, okay, they're a hero because they're far enough away from me. But if it's someone within a closer space, someone else in the field of philosophy maybe or in, in psychology, then I might be like, no, no, I, I think this and then they're copying my thoughts. And I, I had this kind of way of thinking originally, you know what I mean? It might become a competitive thing because they're closer to me. So it might just be that there's all these extra dynamics going on. It might not be a simple case of unlearning. It might look like a simple process, but underneath that simple process, there might be an even more complex process. You know what I mean? So it's it's hard to know whether simplicity or extra complex, complexity is actually the the one that oh, yeah, gets us yeah, closer yeah. to the truth. It's, it's actually yeah, and, and it's, this is this is my struggle in in like I don't have a I don't have a hard and fast uh, mm. um, opinion on it. If you know what I mean, um, yeah. it, it's something that I I question. I don't know. The more books I read, sometimes and I'm like, is it? A, I I go through stages almost of like not reading for long, you know, for a few a number of months yeah. to then kind of having an insatiable appetite to read. It it, it almost happens in bursts, if you know what I mean. And, mm. and maybe that's part of an integration piece or something. I, I don't know what exactly is happening, but I think it's, it also reflects a, it also reflects my relationship with the idea of what works sometimes. And do I yes. do I need to simplify things? Do I or do I need to to dive even further into the complexity of things? So I, I was I was only thinking about this this morning because I I I have more of a desire at the moment to read books I've already read, which is. Huh. Which struck me as a novel desire because, and I think it might be connected to what to the type of work that I'm doing now with the with creating this Wikipedia of my of my own thoughts and stuff, or having this garden where I'm going in and nurturing different ideas and exploring different connections between different thoughts. I'm now wanting to go back through everything that I know, and because I'm now evaluating it for myself rather than like having this desire to have more and more knowledge as if the new bit of knowledge is going to have the old edifice slip into place. It's more my emphasis now is rather than in seeking it outside. And believe me, I still have that massive hunger to keep searching these new ideas, but I just have a growing desire to read more deeply into the things I've already read because I want to break them apart and digest them into my own worldview and be like, does that stand with what this thing, this person over here is? I need to do more critical reflection. And then that, I need to understand more deeply the things that I've read already and the ideas that I'm carrying around as truths that I haven't torn apart. And you know that that the Buddha had a saying in one of the Tibetan sutras that uh, don't don't take my words for granted, cut them, burn them, like do everything you can to figure out what's within them. And I think it's it's for me, it's beginning to go into that process and beginning to follow the veins. It's actually it's ta- it's it's orienting my learning towards my inner world rather than towards this yes. outer world of ideas. If you know what I mean, like I'm yeah. I'm now reading things, listening to where it sparks inspiration, and following that inspiration to because there's some insight there clearly that that resonates with me. So I'm trying to like take the learning that's going on outside and digest it and actually listen more to that internal resonance and following that internal resonance 
rather than it being about the content that's coming in from outside. It's, 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 the, the process oh, looks no, the same. But... Abs- that, yeah, but that makes absolute sense to me. And, mm-hmm. I, and I think this, as far as I've kind of defined this in my own life, it's like it goes from intellectualizing stuff to like embodying the teachings, embodying the experience. Yes, exactly. And, and I think because I have a frustration at times, um, sometimes when I talk to people from a really academic background, it's that they can tell me everything, but they can't tell me, they, or they can repeat lots of information, but they can't tell me how it applies to their life. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember I was actually, um, I was working in London at this consultancy before, and the guy that was running it was saying, um, oh, well, the answers are in psychology, kind of philosophy is entertaining, but it's useless kind of thing. And I was like, <laughs> anytime yeah. someone says that about philosophy, I'm always like, yeah, but that's because you're intellectualizing it. Like how you can read something, even like when I some of the first things I read, even like Marcus Aurelius meditations, how you can read that and not try and apply that to your own life. Like mm. it's, it's almost like unavoidable, like, you know, even just trying to implement some of these things. And I was just wondering, like, how do you, how do you start to, how do you start that process of trying to, or, you know, going, how does this affect my inner world and, and kind of ma- uh, kind mm. of navigate that resonance and so forth? So I, I think, so uh, what I was doing for years was I was underlining things while I was reading books. I was putting flags in the, in, the, in the side. I was taking all these notes while I was reading books, but I wasn't actually going back and harvesting that and digesting that. I think most people will have some form of that where they will recognize what ignites something in them when they're reading it. Maybe it's a story that they're telling to a friend afterwards of like, oh, I read this interesting thing, but it's trying to capture those. It's trying to... It's creating a place where it feels like you're not just sending that into oblivion, where you can go back and write about that and reflect on that. And maybe, maybe even journaling is a good practice of like, take an idea that's resonated with you when you've read it and figure out why that resonates you. Don't, don't just like yes. be like, that's good. I'm going to tell that to other people. Be like, why? What does it remind you of? Like, be, let's, let's make notes about this rather than just note taking and recording what this person's saying. Like, figure out what's resonant there because that will tell you a lot about yourself. And then once you start stringing that together, you start to build your own philosophy because now all of a sudden you're, you're actually seeing, you're listening to the resonances of your soul. And you're beginning to put them together in a book of like, okay, these, this, this is, these are the things that resonate with me. So this is the book that my soul is trying to write because these are, this is where it's telling me the gold is buried. So it's, it's just listening to where you're getting excited while you're reading the book. That's a wonderful entry point. The trick for me was figuring out what was having a place where I could link those ideas together. And the program Obsidian is wonderful because you can, it's like a, yeah, the WikiLeaks thing of like, I could, it'll tell me what other notes this note is connected to and what notes they're connected to. So it ends up creating this universe of notes and ideas. So it feels like everything that I'm doing is turning into a forest of ideas. Like it looks like a mycelial network kind of interconnected ideas, which is wonderful. And it's, it's encouraging to keep writing and to keep reflecting because it feels like it's a living system that's coming together. But I think even just to to take that pause and just to be like, why does this resonate with me? That's that's the essential process of like, what what is it in this that excites me so much? And mapping that over to other thoughts and, and seeing where it's, that leads. It's almost like what's what I'm like. It's almost like putting your own fingerprints on the philosophy. Yes. Like, do, do, do you get what I'm saying? By the way, that, that expression you said there uh, is it the resonance of my where does this uh, the resonance uh, yeah, of my, my soul, soul or something? Yeah, yeah. That sounded absolutely gorgeous. <laughs> um, 
But yeah, it's like putting your own fingerprints on this. Like, I, I think it's almost like, because if you just use this work to kind of have general theories, it does kind of stay in that realm of intellect, the intellectual and almost like entertainment, mm. because it's amazing to talk about all this stuff. Like, yeah. You know what I mean? But if you don't But it stays in a certain it. compartment. It's going to end up compartmentalized, not just in the box intellectual, but in the box intellectual theories of René Girard or theories of Carl Jung. But you want to start Absolutely. like breaking down the walls between different theories and between your your heart, which is resonating to these things. So you, you would, yeah, the personal and the other people. You want to break down all the walls so that you become this, this whole organism that's digesting everything that's coming in rather than that is, you know, one of those people in Plato's caves just looking at the the flares of the of the shadows on the wall. You you want to actually be playing with your own shadows and seeing where that leads down below. Which is uh like I, I can fully appreciate the resistance to do so too, right? Yeah. Um because just from what you've been saying during this conversation, obviously from some of the videos that I see on your channel as well. Like, man, you bring this kind of non-judging or non-labeling <laughs> uh, someone uh, to some pretty impressive extremes insofar as I think I saw a video on you talking about Foucault and, and um, there was pedophilia or something like that in, in, uh, in, yeah. this Fr in this French movement or something or the justification of it. And you, but you spelled it out why it wasn't as simple as it looked like on the surface. Yes. But you really... I don't know, like you seem to be comfortable with the idea that it look this labeling of, you know, and I've said this on a bunch of the podcasts already, but you're the good guy and I'm the bad guy or I'm like vice versa, like that that's just so reductive and it, it, it doesn't go anywhere. Yeah, it probably so, serves I, an ideological I, function rather than, you know what I mean? There's something hidden in that. It, it's an easy label for you to stick in it. Whereas if it was someone on your own team, you'd probably be like, no, no, but here are the extenuating circumstances behind them saying that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so we either want to condemn or we want to justify, depending on what side someone's on, rather than being curious about how did they arrive there and how can we avoid arriving at similar places? Or is there something in that that we want to actually explore? Um, yeah. And so... In this uh, in this process, like how diligent are you almost um, in you know with the obsidian then and all this? Like, is this a is this a regular daily practice of yours, uh, or is it weekly entries? Or just I'm just curious because I you're the second person who's mentioned yeah. this app to oh, me really? or this this function to me, and I'm like I'm like fuck. and he showed me the screen and I was oh, just blown yeah, away yeah, by yeah. it. And I, I wondered myself what I have the discipline for. It's almost like a I've tried to catalog my dreams before and my discipline broke down. Um, yeah. you know, I was reading a book by Bob Moore, I think, or something like that, and it, and it uh, broke down. But it So I have a separate Obsidian Vault for all my dreams because it is the best right. tool for dream work that I've ever come across because okay. you can map the different symbols. So you can be like, where is this friend showing up? Where is your mother showing up? Is there a correlation between those themes showing up? No, I haven't done that much depth work with it. I've, I've, I, I go through bouts with the dreams where I'm, where I'll go through the, the networking phase. Uh, but Obsidian has this thing where it'll say it, it'll mention all the other times that this was mentioned, and you can link it then to that note. So it's wonder. It's, I, I think it's, it's the future of dream work uh, because it allows that right. network uh, thinking rather than linear thinking. Um, but yeah, as yeah. for as for the actual work with ideas, for me, it's become a daily practice because it's now. It, it requires shifting my creative process. I had to completely change my creative process because before it was, 
I'm doing a video on, let's say, Thomas Kuhn's Structure of Scientific Revolutions. So let's go back through the notes that I took. Let's go through my highlights in the book. Let's go through the notes that I took and let's try and corral this into a script. And then I put out the script. And then the next week I'm like working on a new thing. And I just, it was, it, I ended up, uh, and it was getting, it was really getting to me at the end of last year because in the last few months, I just realized that I was ending up with these compartments. I'd studied these different things, but they were remaining in compartments. I wasn't fully digesting the knowledge. So I was getting frustrated with it. And I could just see myself getting burned out because it wasn't nourishing. I was too focused on other people's ideas. So I was like, okay, we need to change the creative process. So for me, it, it required an entire shift because it was all going into Obsidian. And yeah, it was linked to Kuhn, but then it was, it was, it was too linear still. So now I've changed it to uh, what I would call a gardening ethic where I will go in, I will tag a note with uh, to develop or to harvest or once it's moved beyond developed as like gardened. So like I have notes at different stages of development and I try and see it as a garden where I go in and I'm like, what am I working on at the moment? What are the ideas? Okay, let's go in there. What else is connected to it? And I'll just start being like, this reminds me of that thing uh, linked to that note. And then, but I think that this thinker is thinking differently to that. So I, I, I just, every day I'll go in and I'll try and develop one of those things. And then I'll, some of them will, will spark inspiration. Maybe sometimes I'll go back through old books or old art, or articles that I've read on Instapaper, go in, take those highlights, bring that out, see if that sparks a new thing that I'll develop. So it's just kind of, yeah, it's, it's, it's fully taking that, what, what inspires me. So I've collected in Obsidian all these things that are inspiring me and are actively alive at the moment. And then I'll, I'll see what inspires me in the moment. What do I want to develop? Maybe what do I want to turn into a script for next week or a few weeks time? And then I'll, I'll go in and I'll cultivate that. So before writing a script used to be brutal for me because I'd be staring at the blank sheet and I'd be like, oh my God, how, like, there's so many different bits of information. This is pulling me so many different ways. How am I going to present this information in this one linear thing? Now it's like a different thing because I'm like, oh, I have this thought there. What's, well, let, me, let me just throw that out there and then I'll move over to this one over here. So it's more like a garden where they're developing rather than this engineering project of like, I need to assemble this and it's this this tower that I'm building. It's now I'm cultivating, right, right, right. I'm, I'm using the energy that's coming through me of inspiration, which is an organic thing to grow these ideas organically. And then at a certain point, I'm like, there's enough there that I'm not staring at a blank screen and I can now sit down for a couple of hours and really develop that into a full thing. So today it is a daily practice for me and it required a big shift for me in my creative process, but it's, it's much less work than otherwise. You know what I mean? Cause it's, 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 it's like a different type of reading. Even if you weren't uh, a full-time creative, you could just use it to be like, okay, I'm reading articles for this amount of time, but then you want to have the time where you're reflecting on it. So you want to go back and read deeper. But uh, but I think I really like that. Like it's it almost sounds like you're bringing, um, I know I mentioned putting your fingerprints on things, but even with the use of the word organic there, you're kind of bringing intellectual information to life. How does it apply to your life? And, and it's obviously also very um suitable or convenient not convenient but suitable maybe to the work that you're doing yeah, too yeah. and 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 the work the pieces of work that you're creating but given um given how we mentioned at the start like that you know you were at one point kind of focused on the, this question of almost like what what is a good life and you kind of mentioned there developing your own philosophy 
what like what are some of the the pillars of what your philosophy are and how you approach life and and kind of how they dovetail dovetail into the answer then of of perhaps what is a good life for you yeah um i what's coming to my mind is that the 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 highest virtue you could have is curiosity um because i think curiosity we live in an age of nihilism we live in an age where the value our culture is not sharing the entire the same tablet of values and arguably there is no tablet of values anymore there is no clear you know like 10 commandments there's no set of commandments for what it is like to live in a post death of god environment where we're moving into a more and more secular culture even if you're religious it's it's you're still living in a secular culture where the the value system is not so nailed down so it's not as clear how to interact with the secular world as a whole so i think curiosity is a is is the golden virtue for a time it might be the golden virtue for all times but definitely for a time where where the values are no longer given so yeah if if we're trying to be curious it just allows you to get an understanding of these polarizing dynamics that are emerging so you can actually learn and what's interesting is that there's a real opportunity there because people stay in their camps and so they get locked in these echo chambers whereas if you're curious you're you're exploiting a type of information that no one has because they're not mapping over like that map over between Foucault and Peterson it's like no one's doing that because you're either in the Foucault camp or you're in the Peterson camp so there's like unique opportunities for learnings, for pioneering new types of learnings because you're dipping into different pies. So I think curiosity is a great personal virtue because you're starting to look at like, okay, well, what's going on in myself rather than a dogmatic point of view, which is Jung said this or Wilbur said this, therefore that's what I'm experiencing. So rather than putting an intellectual label on what you're experiencing, curiosity says, okay, I wonder if I can apply this to that. I wonder if this will work with that. What does that teach me about that? So it's, it's, that constant curiosity with yourself and with the world that is a brilliant building block for any philosophy. Um, so for me, I am in a state of total curiosity at the moment because I'm like, I don't, the more I'm studying with the channel, the more I'm learning about new philosophers and new ways of thinking, the less I know, uh, the, le- the, yeah, less, yeah, yeah, yeah. the less I feel confident to say, like in my mid-20s, I would have been like the Jungian point of view. I can, this this is, you know what I mean? This is a hill yeah, I would yeah. be happy to die on. Later 20s, I would have been like, okay, Wilbur and Jung. And now I'm just like, the more I read, the more I, I'm taken in by these amazing thinkers and they're contradicting each other. And so there is no easy answer. So curiosity is the best place to be for 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 holding that space and for taking in more and more information and holding it light enough and that's probably where the the downside of this philosophy is is that like you're probably not getting the value of someone who 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 can hold dogmatically to a a particular tablet of values because if you're holding to it if you if you believe that this tablet of values is absolute truth then there's so many questions you don't have to ask and you can live your life with so much more assumptions but again if if you're someone that's struggling with the age of nihilism then probably curiosity you're not going to have that that virtue anyway you're not you're it's not really a downside because you're not really gaining that because you don't have the tablet of values. So for a particular type of modern, and I think there's more and more of us now who are kind of experiencing the neuroticism of what the fuck is going on and how do I proceed? Then I, I think curiosity is, is the golden, is the golden value because it, it, 
it can help in inter interpersonal relations in understanding the social environment and in understanding yourself. And it just might at some point give birth to something new, something that might actually help. Um, so it's kind of a an expectant, like, is something going to emerge? That's kind of the way I'm looking at my work now. I'm like, something might emerge yeah, yeah. out of this. And if not, at least it's it's been good to model that effort. But something might come out of it where I'm like, ah, oh, you know, I've gone from being a fox to being a hedgehog. I've got a great idea. But for now, I'm just like, interested to look at all these different ideas and to see how we can get by with it. So it's not, it's a very loose philosophy, I would say, but it's, it's one that's good for this age of information overload. It is so interesting though, the idea of, um, you know, the benefits of having a dogmatic view on something to eliminate the distractions of so many other lines of inquiry. Mm. But then if you're, if your version of the world is predicated not on, I don't mean it on ignorance or something like that, but I mean, if it's predicated on not seeing the totality of, of the options that are there or the views that are there, you're also, also then like living in a, some, not delusion or something, but you're only looking at a small piece of the puzzle mm. and kind of deluding yourself that that is the entire world or universe. So I think, like it's this give and take kind of too. Yeah, it? but it, it's also you could say the same about language. Like maybe there's there's philosophical problems that are there in English that just in Japanese just wouldn't be a problem. They'd just be non-problems. So it, you mm. could say that our language. You you always have to assume something because we're finite beings. You're never going to know everything. Um, clearly, holding to you know axial age religions like Judaism or going forward and their descendants in, in Christianity and Islam or Buddhism or Hinduism, th those are going to like narrow your perception in a certain way. And that's not really working now because that's leading to conflict, whether it's Bud Buddhism, Muslims in, in Myanmar or, you know, Northern Ireland, the, the Catholics and Protestants. It's just that, that religious difference is, is probably more of a hindrance now than it is a help. So probably not ideal, but in the middle ages, it was probably good to assume all that. Because then what a wonderful thing to be like, okay, my life has meaning and now I can work within that sphere. It's, it's just like language has, has eliminated the idea of coming up with a new form of communication. That tablet of values eliminates a lot of the things you have to think about so that your mind can focus on different things. Whereas, so I, I don't think there's anything exceptionally virtuous about not being tied to a tablet of values. Um, versus being tied to a tablet yeah. of values because I think it's 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 just at the moment it wouldn't be appropriate. But if in future times someone comes up with a new religion and everyone's obeying that uh, and is fucking buzzing off it and it solves a lot of social problems and then we're moving towards something else, you know what I mean? Your your mind can focus on yeah, yeah, yeah. a healthier, yeah. happier sense of community. Then I think that that might be a better thing. You know, I think that that might be that might be quite. I, I, I don't think that that would be inferior uh, in any way. So, yeah, it's, it's just hard to know where to draw that line. Yeah, does that, in, yeah, because I was just wondering, does that infer then that, um, like, our well-being is more important than truth or something? Do you, do you get what I mean? That's like interesting. Society? Yeah, the pragmatic yeah. kind of point of view, yeah. Because uh, that would be, the pragmatism would say that what we believe, so I think this was William James, so that what we believe is more important than what is actually true or that that is the judge of truth yeah. and i don't know where i f where i stand on that because i'm not sure maybe maybe in pragmatism it's it's an interesting question because 
obviously there, I think there are limits to that. It's probably not a hard and fast line. Um, and I definitely don't think you can, you can, you can definitively say that your own well-being is more important than the truth because that sort of delusion will eventually, you know, lead you into a, a into a trouble. So at a certain point, truth is a very important part of it. But I I think it also shouldn't be entirely. Uh, actually, uh, no, I don't even want to commit to that statement. Uh, it's an int- <laughs> it's, yeah, I, I haven't yeah, yeah, thought yeah. enough about the pragmatic question yet to actually definitively say that. Yeah, that that the truth perspective is is worse because the other thing about truth is that like we live in an age of science so it's really hard to know what is actually true like it's uh yeah it's it's, it's hard to know yeah truth is changing all the time like 100 years ago what physics looked like or 120 years ago physics was completely different so what you're really depending on is truth as it is now and and it's not really pragmatism versus truth with a capital T. It's pragmatism versus truth as we know it now. Here's what psychology thinks we are now. But in 100 years, that might be a completely different thing. So you're not really against truth. You're kind of against what, what yeah, is currently yeah. held and to I, be truth. So it, it, it ends yeah, up having a whole range of complications. Absolutely. Um, look, James, I've had a I've had a real uh, blast talking to you, man. Um, yeah, it's been good. It's... Uh, Thank you very, very much for your time up until this point. The, the way I usually sign these things off with is kind of explicitly asking the question of what is a good life for you? Um, mm. I know from what we've been discussing, you've been mentioning purpose, focus on the collective too, coming out of just individuation, looking at other people as well. This idea too as well, even you've mentioned Brené Brown and the Bri- uh, Briar Patch and this kind of idea again mm. of focusing on the environment. Um this idea of maybe letting go of perfection, but then also, you know, just a real strong focus on when I ask you what would be the core of your personal philosophy, it would be curiosity. Uh, so I'd just be intrigued to hear um, your kind of sound bites such as to, to what is a good life for you? See, yeah, there's actually something, I don't know if it's going to be a sound bite, but there's, there's something that I would add to all that, which is uh an element that I, I've, I've neglected to talk about, which is which is family, which is friends, which is your your everyday life, which is the more sensory aspects of living, of like having good food, of looking after your health, having good sleep, having wonderful dreams. So I think while all that self-work and all that, I think being part of a community of people who know you in your best and your worst, that don't just allow you to be the ideal version of yourself. And there's that old saying that I love of, if you want to know how your spiritual quest is going, go home for Christmas. Because there's that sense of the people that know you the longest will kind of know when you're bullshitting. And they know they kind of, they can't help but emotionally react to the type of bullshit that you're putting out. So there's something about that that idea of going home for Christmas that that really appeals to me. So I think as well as those other elements, I think I think that the good life has to contain that mundanity that I haven't really gone into, which is the day-to-day life of yeah, like your your yeah, just your family, your friends, and and I guess just how you live day to day. I think that that's I guess yeah yeah. What is what is a good life? It's uh, I've realized that I'm just unraveling there because it, it opens up more and more. I I think it's oh it's yeah no no this is uh like so as I mentioned to you, I interviewed 120 people around this question in 2021. Yeah. At the end. Um, the rabbit would get the gun and then they'd turn the question on me. Um, and I don't think I ever answered the, I don't think I ever answered the question the same way twice. And, yeah, yeah. you know, it's just, it's an, unra- it's, it is a, 
the, like if you think if you sit with it for long enough and if you've just heard other people's views you'd be like oh yeah of course that too that too that's part of a good life. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. just even getting people's senses of it but i but i really like what you've been kind of mentioning throughout this this idea of kind of self-knowing and developing yourself caring about like an external environment too how do i contribute to that but then also just mm. the really nourishing stuff of relationships family and yeah absolutely this sense of so you think you're enlightened go spend a week with your family kind of thing as <laughs> yeah well. yeah uh, and and there's something about that that also speaks to me kind of just around the i don't know this sense of like just the the, the bread and butter of life as well that in time and sometimes yeah, with exactly. this kind of fanciful ideas and and models and ways of interpreting the world like it, it almost comes down to this like the bread and butter of life as well with some of those relationships yeah and i think it's something it's hard to, to say where that fits into the overall philosophical you know thing but it's it's something that's so it's been such an important part of my journey because yeah. After that whole, I'm going to go to Australia and, you know, I'm, you know I'm, I'm on this quest to become enlightened or whatever. There was that turning point and that, and that phrase of going home for Christmas was like a key part of it and coming home and realizing that I really hadn't done as much work as I thought I'd done. But then, yeah, I haven't, or maybe it was just that there was a different type of work that had to be done and, and kind of, I'd, I'd moved away to, to Scotland at 18. So I guess forming a relationship with my parents as an adult going to see my grandmother a couple of times a week and just kind of being tuned in with that older generation with a completely different perspective and also such like connected to my lineage and hearing about like my family's, you know, hearing about all the different characters going back in my family tree. So I'm like, oh, that's where I got that from. That's where I got that from. So yeah, there's something yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah. deeply like of the roots about that. And all the philosophy yeah. stuff is very much in the shoots and seeing where I'm striving for and seeing what's, where i'm headed but it's very important to be in connection with that, those roots and ireland has that ingrained in it of like i used to hate it when i was younger of the kind of cut the the irish like need to make a joke about everything uh or you know just kind of cutting down people that ah you know you're kind of getting away from yourself there but now i kind of love it in a way because it's so grounding there's like something yeah 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 like having having gotten my chance to to fly and to come back down i really i have an appreciation and just love of ireland because of that grounding element of like it just it allows so little bullshit in a lot of ways and i think it could be a bit looser because it's it's going to it's harder for people to get to the point of rising but just something in that earthiness that i think is such an important complement to what I see is like the battlefield of the gods of the culture wars that everyone's getting caught up in. And you're arguing with people at, over your dinner table about something that's going on in America. And it's like, yeah, but let's remember what the roots are here. Let's, let's tap back into the roots and yeah, let's yeah, not yeah, be yeah, getting yeah. carried away by shit that's happening in the archetypal realm. So yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to, to, to say before, well, like before that question, throughout this conversation, it's hard, it's hard to put that in its right place, but without my friends, without my family, just my life just would not be, yeah, like all the ideas in the world just wouldn't keep me nourished in the way that th those human connections and being part of something, being part of other people's journeys and seeing kids being born and growing up and seeing like your grandparents or your parents and being part of the, the tapestry of the generations and of a community is so essential. And I think it's hard to, it's so hard to pin down or to articulate how important that is. Um, that it can often get overlooked but yeah it's 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 just it's so important and it's it's such a key part of my life um 
So yeah, yeah that's that, that uh, that's, be, uh, that's beautifully be said, beautifully articulated. Um, James, look, thank you very much for your time today. Uh, it was a great pleasure having you on. Uh, what is a good life today? Um, much appreciated and and who yeah. knows hopefully we, our paths can cross again in the future I, i'd say absolutely thank you so much for having me it's been a, a pleasure to actually get some of these thoughts kind of straightened up and aligned for myself as well so it's been a lot of value for me